0: our old testament reading is from the book of second samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 17. when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers i will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Today's psalm is 132. We will read responsively by whole verse. Lord, remember David and all his tribulations. How he swore swore unto unto the Lord, and vowed a vow unto the Almighty God of Jacob. I will not come within the tabernacle of my house, nor climb up into my bed. I will will not not allow my eyes to sleep, nor my eyelids to slumber, neither the the temples temples of my head to take
2: any rest,
1: until I find a place for the temple of the Lord. A habitation for the mighty God of Jacob.
2: We We heard the the ark
1: in Ephraim and and found it in the wood. We will go into his tabernacle and fall low on our knees before his footstool. Rise Lord Lord,
2: into your resting place. You are your strength.
1: Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints sing with joy. For your your servants for not. The Lord has made a faithful oath unto David, and he shall not shrink from it.
2: Of the fruit your own shall I set upon your throne.
1: If your children will keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their children also shall sit upon your throne forevermore.
0: The Lord has chosen Zion for himself. He has longed for her to
1: be his habitation. This shall be my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have a delight therein. I will bless her provisions with increase, and will satisfy her poor with prayer. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall rejoice and sing. There There shall I make the horn of David
0: flourish. I have prepared a lantern
1: for my As for his enemies, I shall clothe them with shame, but upon his head shall his crown flourish. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As is now, and ever shall
0: be, world without end. Our New Testament reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 26 to 33. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed when they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm you are my son today i have become your father the word of the lord thanks be to
2: god our gospel lesson this morning comes from luke chapter 24 starting in verse 13. will you please stand for the reading of the gospel church this is the holy gospel of our lord jesus christ according to saint luke That very day, that's Easter, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with one another about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? and they stood still, looking sad. One of them, one of them named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death And crucified him but yet we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel yes and besides all this it is now the third day since these things happened. moreover some women of our company amazed us they were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body they came back saying that they even had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive some of us who were there with them went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening as the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to scriptures, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, they found the eleven and those who were all gathered together with them, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Happy Easter. To some it sounds a little bit strange to say that a week after the the thing happened, but in our tradition, and indeed for most of church history, Easter is not just a day, Easter is also a season, and it runs from last Sunday through June 5th, which is Pentecost Sunday. Fifty days of Easter, fifty days of feasting, fifty days of proclaiming joyously the resurrection. And so, we are continuing in our walk through the Gospel of Mark. That we've been doing since winter i'm sorry the gospel of luke and so the first sermon after easter is the first event that takes place after easter sunday it's the first thing that luke records after the actual resurrection this passage known as the road to emmaus this passage has become one of my all-time favorite passages in the bible it is such a, a beautiful story it's so well told but oftentimes this story gets used by by pastors and theologians and stuff as more of a a proof text to illustrate a point, actually one of two points. And so we'll either use it to talk about um, what the Bible is as a whole, or we'll use it to talk about what the sacraments are, what the Lord's Supper is. And so sometimes we can actually take these theological points that the story is making and actually miss the entire point of the story that happened between these three people because sometimes, like, for instance, I only think of this text in terms of what does this tell us about the Old Testament? I'll, I'll almost always read it at the beginning of a, of a series that I'm doing on the Old Testament, either a sermon series or a teaching or a discipling thing, and, and it's great for that. It really is, because it, it shows us with Jesus' own words and his, and, and his belief in what the Bible is for. But it's so much more than that. It really is, it's... It's the first in a series of stories that appears throughout the Gospels of the risen Lord appearing to his followers supernaturally in a moment and then in rapid-fire succession kind of showing different aspects of the truth of the resurrection and the final full revelation of who he is and what he came to do. So today, these two disciples are, are kind of sad, a little hopeful. And really confused They didn't know where Jesus' body had gone to And so they asked the question They're basically asking the question Where is our Messiah? Where is the Messiah? And the passage shows the two different places that he's found He's he's found in a book And he's found at a table In the very first words of this passage This is the part about he's found in a book In the very first words of this passage we, We know when this is happening It's that same day Easter Sunday. That same day is the resurrection. Two disciples walking toward a little village called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they're walking, this third person joins them. Jesus shows up and starts walking with them. And it says that they were kept from recognizing him. It doesn't mean that they were dumb or blind. It means that there was actually something external to them that was preventing them from knowing who he was. In verse 17, Jesus says, What are you discussing with one another? And then the only one of the two that's named, named Cleopas, and I imagine that he was a little embarrassed about this when he saw his name in print, um, Jesus says, What are you guys talking about? And Cleopas basically says, What rock have you been hiding under? Like, how do you. Where have you been? Are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been going on the last couple days? Easter morning. Jesus is risen from the dead. Cleopas decides that this is a good day to talk smack to the resurrected Messiah. (laughs) And so, um, (laughs) it's such a dumb joke. Cleopas says, what rock have you been hiding under? And Jesus goes, that big round one back there. It's rolled away now. (laughs) But, (laughs) but then, look, look at the real answer. Look at the real answer. It tells us, so much more about who these people were as followers of Jesus. And, and then the way that Jesus responds tells them so much about him. Cleopas, and, and we presume whoever was with him, they're, they're Jesus' disciples. Now, they're not part of the disciples that we think about, like the, the 12 who became apostles. But remember, Jesus had like layers and layers of people who were following him. He had his three closest guys, Peter, James, and John. And then he had his 12 Disciples, his 12 apostles, the ones who really started the church. But then he also, we read in the gospel, he had 70 people that he sent out before him. These were disciples as well. And then maybe up to a couple hundred who were following him around at various times during his ministry. So the point is, Cleopas and and whoever, I'm going to call, it might be Mrs. Cleopas, that's what we're calling her. Cleopas and Companion were followers of Jesus. They they, They knew enough about what he was doing and what he had said he had come to do, They were clearly part of his his group, but I don't think they had the full picture. Because in response to Jesus' question, what are you guys talking about? Cleopas says, and it's in verse 19, listen to what he doesn't say. What he does say is we're, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And he goes on, then, he goes on talking about what his expectations of the Messiah was, how, how he thought that, that this might be the one to redeem Israel, and how hopeless they must have felt at this time. They thought, what most people thought at the time, that the Messiah was going to be this political, military leader, this powerful figure who was going to restore Israel to sovereignty and freedom them from 400 years of oppressive tyrannical rule by various empires. Free them to finally be able to worship their God in peace. But now, not only has this guy that we thought the Messiah, not only has he not overcome the oppressors and thrown them out of Israel, but he actually died at their hand using their execution methods. What can that say about God's promises? I mean, if if this was supposed to be the guy, and not only did he not do what we thought he was gonna do, but he actually got killed by the people that he, was supposed to, that he was supposed to triumph over. What does this say about God's promises? Can any of this be true? When I think about this, the, the despair that might have been in the minds of the disciples might just be overwhelming to them. But the reason is because they didn't yet know the full picture of what Jesus' victory really is. They knew a few things. They knew that he was... A prophet, mighty in word and deed. They knew that, that, that he might be the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they knew facts. They know a lot about what had happened the previous week, too. They knew facts about what had happened the previous week. He was sentenced to death. They crucified him. And then they know an overwhelming amount of detail and specificity about what had happened that morning. Because clearly they had been in conversation with the other disciples. So they knew facts, but they didn't yet see the full picture. And the thing that, that sticks with me here is that Jesus is so patient with them. I mean, yeah, he kind of he needles them back a little bit, but, but think about what he doesn't say. Yes, he, he says, "Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. Now, this is not as much of an insult as we might think of it today, but saying that they're slow of heart is they're, they're slow to believe. They're slow to internalize. They're slow to take this, this knowledge that they've been given and actually make it a part of who they are. So he tells them what's wrong with them, that they are slow to believe. But what he doesn't say is, your knowledge about me is incomplete. You don't have the full picture of who I am. You don't understand fully, and so that means you're not one of my sheep. Goodbye and good luck. Have fun walking to Emmaus. This is yet another picture of how God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so these people who were with Jesus and had followed him and probably had access to the truth that he was giving them. They still didn't understand. But he doesn't kick them out. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't walk away. He walks with them. He takes the time to be with them and to teach them and to show them about who he really is. And the interesting thing is that he does it from the pages of the Old Testament. A A lot of Christians, and I used to be among them, had no idea what to do with the Old Testament. It is... It's a collection of histories. There's a staggering amount of rules on how properly to worship God. There's these long poetic prophecies about neighboring nations to Israel. There's a couple books of songs. And on the whole, there's a lot of people that really don't quite know what to do with it. And it can be intimidating. And that's been true for a very long time, by the way. You'll hear today stories of pastors who who say that we can basically kind of uncouple the Old Testament from the New Testament. We have the Gospels, and we have the letters to the New Church, and that's enough for us. But this is not a new thing. That's, this has been going on for 1,700 years. But it's such a weird idea. It's, it's so wasteful. David brought this up last week. If you hold up a Bible, about 75% of it's the Old Testament, 25% the New Testament. And so if, if you want to know who Jesus really is, in this book, this series of books, collection of 66 books, that's been inspired by God, if you're going to limit yourself to only the last 25%, it actually seems kind of wasteful. So if you want to know who Jesus is, you read the whole Bible. To do anything else would be like trying to read the, the, the last book in a, in a book series, like trying to read the, the last book in the Harry Potter series without reading the first six. Like, it's still a great book, and it can stand on its own. But if you, don't know, if, if you don't know what came before it, you lose a lot of the richness of who these people really are. For me, it, it, it wasn't until I, I started understanding passages like this one, and, and like another passage in, in John chapter 5, I didn't really get what the Old Testament was about. In John chapter 5, uh, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, the, the guys who were supposed to be experts in the Old Testament, really knowledgeable. And he he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you can find eternal life. But it's the the thing they're bearing witness about is me. And yet you refuse to come to me and have the life that I have to give you. Then a little later, he says, there is only one person that accuses you, Moses, of of, of whom you have set your hope. These are experts in the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, these Pharisees. And so he's saying, You've studied these books of Moses your whole lives, and he's the one that's accusing you. Because Jesus goes on to say to them, if you believed Moses, then you would believe me, because Moses wrote about me. He says it that explicitly. And so that passage in John 5, and this passage in Luke 24, illustrates something that I simply didn't understand until about 10 years ago. That the Bible tells one overarching story, one coherent narrative, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And it takes all 66 books of the Bible to tell it. And the whole thing points at one central figure, even though he doesn't show up for 75% of the way through. But with these two people, with, with these two followers on the road to Emmaus, Jesus starts at the beginning. He works through the entire Old Testament Bible with them, and he shows them bits and pieces. He shows them who he is and what had to happen in order for this redemption that God was working to be fulfilled. It's easy to imagine some of what he said. And yes, not every single verse in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Some of it is about us. Some of it is about our neighbors. But overall, the main thrust of the story is God's redemption of his people, and so that all focuses in on who Christ is. The Bible is a collection of books that focus on the history of God's redemption, And the overarching narrative of this sweep is the Messiah. And so here's just a few of the highlights of what Jesus might have talked about as he opened up the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, to talk to the two people on Emmaus. He might have brought them to Genesis 3.15. This is the very first hint, three chapters into the Bible, that God is going to redeem his people. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, God promises that the offspring, the singular offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent even while the serpent bruises this offspring's heel. So the Son of Man will be bruised and hurt, but eventually victorious over Satan and evil. And then later on in Genesis, God says to Abraham, through your offspring, singular, through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. In Numbers, there was a prophet named Balaam who said, I, who said about the one who was coming, he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. A star is going to rise out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. There's the entire book of Joshua as, a, as kind of a, a parallel foretaste of what Jesus was going to do. Joshua, who was the savior of his people, who led them through the Jordan River into this promised land. It's no coincidence that, that Jesus' name in the original language that the Bible was written in was not Jesus. That's a Latin word that came to us hundreds of years later. In, in his native Hebrew or Aramaic tongue, Jesus' name was Yeshua, which is the word Joshua. It's not by accident, because he was going to be the true and final Joshua who would bring his people from death into life. In Second Samuel chapter 7, we just heard Ryan read this. God says to King David, I'm going to raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house in my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And maybe Cleopas and his friend knew all these things already. Maybe they knew all of these things already. But clearly, they hadn't put it together. They didn't understand. And maybe they'd forgotten the passage like Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. When it says, I offered my back to those who beat me. I offered my back to those who beat me because the sovereign Lord helps me. I cannot be disgraced. I cannot be disgraced. That's the Messiah. That's who the Messiah really was. He was the one who came to be a suffering servant. He was the one who came to die so that we might live. That's what Jesus means when he says to the followers, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? All of the scriptures point to Christ. The through line of all the scriptures is Christ. The Bible is a series of 66 books, but it tells one big story. And for you, for me, for any of us, it can speak to you as clearly today as it did to people back then. You know, there, there are people who think that the, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. It's a very common opinion, especially among atheists. There are those who think that the God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are two very different seeming gods. Sometimes how we look at the Old Testament is either through fear or boredom or just confusion. We, we don't know how to connect it to the Christian faith that's talked about in the Gospels. But this is, this is the key. This is the lens through which to understand it because Jesus tells us that all of scripture is really about him. And the great part of this story, and Jesus illustrates this, is we don't have to get it totally right before God will come to us We don't have to get it totally right before God will come to us. Jesus uses the scripture that he himself inspired to teach us more about him, to give us a fuller and richer picture of who he is. We don't have to have complete and total knowledge of who God is. When we give him our faith, when we give him our our allegiance, when we say that we're going to follow him, he will continue over the course of our life as he walks with us. He will continue to show us more and more of who he truly is. And we can get that, and, and, and I don't want to make an application that's just as basic as read your Bible, but we can get that in the pages of Scripture. He meets with us there. He shows himself to us there. And so when you're reading through passages, especially in the Old Testament, the, the, the thing to always ask is, what does this passage tell me about Jesus? How is this pointing forward to our need for Christ? How is this illustrating who he's going to be? How is this going to show what his work is and his character? Now, maybe all this is obvious to you guys, but it wasn't to me for the longest time. And so I really enjoy talking about this stuff. I didn't know what to do with the Old Testament. When I was little, it was a bunch of cool stories. When I got to be a teenager, I tried to use it as like a rule book for how to live. And when that didn't work, I just abandoned it altogether. I had no use for it because I couldn't figure out what to do with it. These massive sections of prophetic poetry that I didn't understand. These songs of, of lament and woe that I just couldn't connect with. And so eventually I just ignored it. But if you buy what Jesus is saying here, if you buy what he's saying to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, if you buy the idea that the whole, that the whole Bible tells God's story of redemption, the Old Testament really starts to unlock so that's one of the two places that Jesus is, is showing himself to people in this book. And the second place that he shows himself to people is at a table. Even after Jesus was done talking to them, even when he had made their hearts burn, when he opened up the scripture to them and kind of and the scales fell from their eyes and they, and they understood why these things have to happen, he still continued with them. They still didn't know who he was. Their hearts were open to the truth, but their eyes weren't yet open to the reality until the second thing happened. In verse 28, they're they're arriving at this village of Emmaus that they'd been journeying to. Jesus acts like he's going on a little bit further, but they urge him to stay with them. They said, because the day is almost spent. It's going to be night soon. Now, at, at that time... You did not continue a journey after night fell. I mean, it makes sense. There were, there were no headlights. There were no streetlights. There was no nothing. And so unless there was a, a bright moon, journeying at night would have been treacherous. And even with a bright moon, journeying at, night, journeying at night would have been dangerous. There were robbers. There were bad people. It wasn't safe. And so they invite him to come in. They invite him to stay. And that's why he was pretending to go on so that they could, he could be invited into their fellowship, be invited to their table. In verse 30, it was as he reclined with them at the table that he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And it was then that their eyes were opened to who he truly was. They recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Now make no mistake, the language that's being used here is liturgical language, that shows up over and over again in the New Testament when it talks about the Lord's Supper. It's worshipful language. He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them. It might remind you of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with only a few loaves and fishes. It might remind you of the last night before before the crucifixion, the last supper, when he instituted the idea of communion of the Lord's Supper, where he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. Jesus was made known to his followers through this table fellowship. And as soon as they recognized him, the moment they recognized him, he disappeared from their sight. This, by the way, is a real theme of all the accounts of the the post-resurrection Jesus. As this resurrected king who has been given all power and authority on earth, his power is on display in a new and different way. He really is among them. No matter where they are, he'll just show up in various places behind locked doors in a collection of his followers he will be among them these accounts are small snapshots of what jesus said would happen in matthew 18 verse 20 wherever two or three are gathered together in his name he will be among them and so friends christ really and truly is among us right now jesus is risen and jesus exists today in the same risen body that he had in this passage in Luke 24. He exists in physical form somewhere in the universe today. But, but, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is also joined to each and every Christian. He is united to us. We are in him and he is in us. And this is, it's difficult to pin down, but both of those things are true at the same time. We say it every week when we celebrate communion. Is the Father Father with us? Is Christ among us? Is the spirit here? And the answer in those cases to each question is yes. Yes, he is. Now, there's no indication that what Jesus was doing here in the room with the people was actually itself a reenactment of the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's, he doesn't use the language of this is my body, and it was just bread, there was no wine. But the connections are clear. This kind of worshipful and, and intentional liturgical language are used here, this is a ritual. The same language that was used in the feeding of the 5,000. The same language used in the Last Supper. And so we can't assume that every time that we're going to break bread together, Jesus is going to physically appear on the scene. Like, you can't take this description of a thing that really happened and turn it into a universal prescription for all Christians. But when the people of God gather together in fellowship, Christ really is among them. When the people of God gather together to tell the story of God, Christ really is with them, and their faith is strengthened, and their eyes can see more clearly who he is. And when the people of God gather together around the Lord's table, as we do every week, when we eat together, Christ is with us. He's not with us in a, in a, in a physical way, but he's with us in a real way. Theologian Daniel Block, Daniel Bach said about this passage, that as Jesus gradually reveals himself to his disciples, it goes from absence to presence. At first, they're bemoaning the fact that their Lord is no longer with them. And then at the end, they realize that he is actually physically present with them. They had believed that he was the one to redeem Israel, but now he died. And, and yet we can't even find his body. So they can't even mourn him properly. <coughs> they had to feel like they had backed the wrong horse in some way. I mean. Yes, there was a little bit of hope, but was this really the guy? Were God's promises really what what he said they were? But this is who Jesus is, because as Jesus shows, Jesus' victory is always through defeat, through suffering, through intentionally becoming the least of us. And so as he gradually reveals to these other followers who he really is, they start to see that all the Old Testament scriptures... All the hints of the the suffering servant, the hints of the eternal kingdom, even the hints of resurrection from the dead, everything was pointing to this moment. Absence becomes presence. And in that same time, this sense of failure becomes fulfillment. Because now it wasn't the plans of God got crushed by the Romans, now it was getting crushed by the Romans is the plan of God. So picture these two ways to know Jesus in, in a book and at a table. Doesn't that kind of sound like the journey that all Christians are on? These two disciples have had their, their eyes open, their hearts, on, hearts set on fire by this new knowledge of how scripture points to Jesus. They were energized by knowledge, right? They were, they were energized by what God was showing them about who he was. And then they're transformed into action when he reveals himself to them at the table. Their hearts are on fire by knowing God and his word, and their feet are spurned to action by communing with God at his table. And we know their feet were spurned to action because they immediately got up and they ran back to where they had come from. They ran back to Jerusalem because they couldn't keep this news to themselves. They had to go tell them. They had to go tell their friends. And this is the part of the story that I sometimes miss when I'm using this as a a proof text for a, a, a view of the Lord's Supper or a view of the Old Testament. They were so excited by what they saw that they ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem. Because the truth of this story, more than anything else, more than what the Bible can tell us about Jesus, more than what the the table can tell us about Jesus, the truth of this story is that here are two more people who learned that day he is risen. Jesus is alive. He was not appearing to his friends like a ghost because Ghosts can't take bread and break it and give it to people. So he wasn't just like Banquo's ghost from Macbeth showing up at a dinner. Like, this is a person who was dead and now isn't dead anymore. That's the kind of thing that you would have to run seven miles back in the opposite direction to tell your friends. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen, they were saying. And we saw him. He was with us. We have seen the Lord. So these two things, word and sacrament, a a book and a table, these two things, studying God's word and then communing with him at his table, these are what theologians call the ordinary means of grace. Two things, not to the exclusion of any other, but two ways that God promises that he will meet with his people. If you want to meet God and get more of God and, and learn more about Christ and experience more of Christ, these are two ways to do it. These are the two ways that that God has promised that he will always meet with his people. You know, I I sometimes get a little envious of people who say that um, that they have heard a word from the Lord, that they were were praying, that they were being quiet, and that they really heard a word from the Lord about something. I, I sometimes get down on myself because that has never happened to me. I've never been able to either audibly or just like in my my spirit, really feel like I was getting a distinct and exact word from the Lord. And I know that people do, and that's wonderful. Hasn't happened to me. Now, when I look back on my life, I mean, I can plainly, clearly see the hand of God guiding me, working different things to the path that he has for me. It's obvious to me. But never, never heard what people refer to as a word from the Lord, but that's okay. Because if there's anyone else there that's like me, we get to hear from God every day. Every day I hear from the Lord when I open my Bible. Every day I hear more about what God's plan for his people is, what his path is, and what he expects of us. Every day I get to learn more about Jesus. God speaks to his people through his word. And every time I gather in fellowship with Christians, especially around this table, But even even around any table, every time I gather in fellowship with Christians, my eyes are opened a little bit more to the beauty and the truth of who Jesus is. Christ is among us and with us when we gather together. And Christ is within us individually all the time. That is true and it is central to our faith. But the other thing that is true that follows that is that we can know him. He is knowable. He has made himself knowable to us. And we can seek after him. And he promises to meet with us. And so that's my prayer for us today. God, may our hearts burn within us as we learn more about Jesus. And may our eyes be opened to the truth and our, and our hands and our feet be spurred to action as we commune more with Jesus. As we find out more about who he is what he came to do and what he has for us may these things be true for us like they were true for the disciples on the Emmaus road amen